Lord, it is good to dwell in your presence. And to think that as the song we just sang said that this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Amen. That we can actually praise you all day long. And indeed we should because you and only you are worthy. Now may you be pleased with the teaching this morning. And as in all things, Father, with the gift you've given me, use it to shine the light on Jesus Christ. Remove me from the equation. And may it be as if Jesus Christ were present behind this pulpit this morning. Amen. Please take a seat, get your Bibles out, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. We will get through a portion of this this week, and then next week, as you may or may not know, I will be out of town. Erica and Lydia and I will be back in Ohio visiting my family. And um, you get to hear Don Teodoro preach. So... Amen to that, absolutely. Now they say that when the cat's away, the mice play, so I'm asking you to behave for Don, okay? Don't give him any, any too much of a hard time, okay? And, if you, and, and I'll, be, you know, I'll get a sermon, and then I can send you difficult questions to ask Don afterwards, okay? Where he made a mistake, what he should have done better, and then you can, can grill him that way, okay? All right? Matthew six twenty five through 34. It says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes, clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now we're going to start this morning talking about worry. But before we begin, because that's obviously what is being addressed by our Lord in this sermon, they say that behind every verse in the Bible, you can learn something about God. Okay? Did you guys hear me on that? 
With that in mind, I thought, okay, let's begin this morning looking at our text through the lens of what it teaches us about God. Because I believe that it is absolutely crucial to know these truths about God if we are able to take on our common enemy called worry. Just in a, in, in a brief glance of the text, I came up with four truths about God. And these are not deep, unearthed truths. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Number one is that God feeds the birds even though they do not sow or reap. Number two, God clothes the flowers of the fields even though uh, they're eventually thrown into the furnace. God knows that his children, which are worth more to him than birds and, and flowers, need food and clothing and will provide these necessities. And God commands that his children not worry, even about the necessities of life, because he is concerned about our quality of life. He wants us to experience fullness of life. Now, I want you to pay particular attention, <coughs> excuse me, to verse 25 and 27. It says, do not be worried about your life. Do you see that? First reference to life. In who of you, or is not life more than food? Second reference to life. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? So obviously God is, three times he mentions the word life. He's concerned about life. That's the Greek word suke. And that has to do with the, the fullness of earthly, physical life. Jesus said, and I think it's John 10, 10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's a different Greek word for life. They're all interrelated, but this word refers specifically to to earthly or to physical life. And so when you read the word life in these verses, think this. It's all that is life in this world. All that is life in this world. So in your experience of life, God is saying, I don't want my children to be anxious about the temporary physical necessities of this world. The eating, the drinking, and the clothing. You see, he is very serious about the experience of our quality of life, specifically our quality of physical life. Now, he is so serious about this that in verse 25, the actual Greek tense of the verb is unique, and it means this stop worrying. Stop worrying. If you're already worrying, stop it. And look at verse 31. It's a different tense in the word worry. That tense reveals that he is saying, don't start worrying. So either way you look at it, God is covering all the bases in regards to worry. If you're worrying, stop. And if you're not worrying, you know, don't start. Okay? Now, why is God so thorough in his attack on worry? Perhaps because it's just so common. I mean, this is the way we think, right? That's just the way life is. 
to have any other experience of life, i.e. an anxiety-free life, I mean, that just is out of the question. It's out of our minds. We don't even think about that, right? So it's just so common to worry, and it's also, secondly, it's so easy to worry. It just becomes a natural life reaction. You want proof of that? Anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the United States. They affect 40 million adults in the U.S., age 18 and older. That's almost 20%. It's 18% of the U.S. population. And according to Anxiety and Depression Association of America, there are different types of anxiety disorders. Let's look at some of these. There's your most common, which is a general anxiety disorder. Take a look at that. Okay. It affects you know, almost 7 million adults. And I want you to notice these things as we go through this. You'll see a similarity in the patterns of, of worry. Women are twice as likely to be affected as men. And only 43% are receiving treatment for worry. So the other 57% are what? living with it. See that? There's what we call panic disorder. Okay? That affects 6 million adults. And again, women are twice as likely to be affected as men. And when I, I discovered this, it was really eye-opening, these statistics. And trust me, you'll see a pattern here. There is, uh, and I was introduced to this, by the way, uh, social anxiety disorder at Auburn Riverside High School, I saw these kids that were dressing in their pajamas and carrying blankets to school. What's that? Is this sort of play or something? Well, no. No, they, have, they get uncomfortable in, in big groups. They have this, you know, this social anxiety disorder. So they get special treatment in terms of they don't have to be to the large meetings. They can carry a blanket and a pillow and stuff like that. I mean, in my time, in my day, if someone did that, I mean, you know what would happen in high school, Okay. But look at that. It's 15 million adults. Now notice that it's both men and women suffer, suffer equally with this disorder, this anxiety disorder, this worry disorder. And again, only 36% of people with social anxiety disorder report experience symptoms for 10 or more years before seeking help. So they live with it for 10 or more years. Okay? Before they seek help. There are specific phobias related to anxiety. They affect 19 million adults. Again, look at that. Women are what? They're twice as likely to be affected by men. And of course, the uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, are closely related to anxiety disorders. Now, here's a couple of thoughts if you just look at these statistics. First thing that stood out to me is that women are twice as likely to suffer from anxiety or worry. And that would make sense. Uh, I have had a grandmother who suffered from worry and anxiety. It was passed on to my mother who has you know, vigilantly fought that over the years and so on. Um, the second point I noticed is that people accept, accept anxiety, as these statistics show, as a normal part of life. Did you see that? 
So almost 60%, roughly 57%, live with anxiety more than receive treatment. But why? Why would you do that? I mean, one of the answers has to be, I just didn't know that there was another life out there, another option. Now, I discovered this article in my research for this sermon entitled, Welcome to the Worry Games by Annalisa Scott. At the time this was written, I believe it was 2015, um, and I could be wrong on that, but she is a 40, or was a 47-year-old mom of five living in the Midwest. Now, I want you to pay particular close attention to a, a portion of her story because she has not only accepted anxiety or worry as a normal part of her life, here's the catch. She is proud of it. Here's some of what she wrote. She says, my anxiety disorder first erupted when I was about 25 after my children's father had a heart attack at the age of 35. I'm assuming she uses the phrase, my children's father, that was her husband. They probably are separated or divorced. But two days after his heart attack, I was driving home from the hospital and I had my first panic attack. I was overcome with fear and terror and had the sensation that something horrible was going on, but I had no clue what it was. I went straight to the doctor where I was treated as, as if I was on drugs and told that I just needed to get home or to go home and calm down. And the moment that panic attack began, so began the worst period of my life. General anxiety disorder, there you go, and panic disorder pretty much took over my life. It was a time filled with anxiety, terror, uncertainty, confusion, and exhaustion. And this continued off and on for the next two to three years with new symptoms popping up every time I would get over the previous symptoms under, or I'd get them under control. After I got my GAD and panic disorder under control, I then developed a severe case of OCD, which still affects my day-to-day -day life, although to a much smaller degree. I have had pretty much every anxiety symptom there is. Now listen to this. This is some of her anxiety symptoms. Health fears, intrusive thoughts, panic attacks, insomnia, social anxiety, palpitations, fear of driving, fear of leaving my house, fear of the death of my loved ones, depersonalization, fear of going crazy, obsessive checking, etc., etc. I have, have had anxiety about having anxiety. I've had anxiety about the times when I did not feel anxiety. I've had fears of choking. I've had fears of forgetting how to breathe. I've had days where I was so filled with worry that I was literally sick to my stomach. I've had pregnancy-related anxiety. I've had postpartum anxiety so bad that I have been unable to sleep for days at a time out of fear my baby would die of SIDS. I have been there, done that with all of it. And there was a time when I could have been horrified at the thought of telling the world about my problems. That is not the life that God wants for his children. Now, I don't know if this person is a believer or not, but I don't believe that that's the life that God wants for any of, of his creation. She goes on to say it was a secret for years, but those days are long over. Now I want you to pay particular attention. When I send you the sermon, this part of her story is highlighted. 
Here's what she said. I am a proud, card-carrying, lifetime member of the Anxiety Club. And I feel super lucky for that, and I would gladly slap my face on a million posters if I thought my story and experience would help people recover. Anxiety will always be a part of my life, but it no longer controls me because I know it like the back of my hand. Anxiety is my guide. I need, all in capital letters, I need it in my life, and if I had the choice to have it taken away forever, I wouldn't do it. I have learned that it is a good thing, a product of my own personality, and that instead of fighting it, I need to listen, capital letters, listen to it, and figure out what it is really trying to tell me. I am not making this up. I am reading verbatim what she wrote. She goes on to say, helping people with, my, with their anxiety disorder is my passion. It is my mission to, in life to bust the anxiety myth and show the world that anxiety is not an illness. Now, mind you, what is the medical association profession define anxiety and worry as? It is a medical illness. There are medications for that. It is, in most cases, very manageable and very easily understood if it is explained in the right way, and I hope that is what I can do for you. Once you understand it, it's all downhill from there. Now, this next section, again, is highlighted for you when you get this sermon. Here's what she writes. Anxiety didn't ruin my life. It only made it better. And I want to show you how to make it work for you as well. I want you to be a proud, capital letters, proud, person with anxiety and embrace your uniqueness and quirks just as I do. I, it takes some pretty special personality traits to create an anxiety disorder, and you were lucky enough to be born with a lot of them, and that is something to celebrate. Exclamation point. You will get this sermon. You can look it up online. I am not making that up. Now, this story, it perfectly illustrates, in my opinion, the world's view on worry, taken to another level. It is not only a normal part of life, but in this lady's case, it is to be celebrated. God does not want his children to go through life experiencing these type of symptoms. Look at this. You should be able to read that. I made it as big as I could. It's from the Mental Health First Aid website. And I expand a little bit, but look. There are physical, psychological, and behavioral consequences. I'm not going to read that. You can read it for yourselves. Is that, going through life with all of this, is that a life worth living, I ask you? I mean, is that the fullness of life that God is, wants for you? Is not life more than this, is what he is saying. Now, all of us suffer from some form of anxiety or worry at, at different degrees, okay? 
And when you're in that or going through a time with that, life is not fun. And I want you to know that your Heavenly Father does not want that life for you. Who would want that? But yet, what does the world say? (laughs) Well, you know, worry has always been, in, in my opinion, a part of the human experience. Now, I suspect that our Lord Jesus, he speaks so definitively and authoritatively to his audience on this matter in his first public sermon, mind you, because he knows it's very tempting to worry and to settle for a life filled with worry. Now, let's put some of this in perspective. If you were living in Palestine at Jesus' time, you would have at the very least been concerned because there were times when the snows didn't fall on the mountains. And when the snows didn't fall on the mountains, guess what? The streams didn't fall. They didn't run. And in the burning summer heat, the streams, what were left of them, would dry up and there would be no water. There were also times when the crops didn't come through because the locusts plagued the crops. When this happened, there wasn't any food, and the result was a famine in the land. And then there was a famine in the land. There was no income, so guess what you weren't purchasing? Clothing. Now, again, this provides some perspective. This was a very real option or reality for the people at the time that Jesus was speaking to them. So our worries, whatever it is we worry about, really are trivial compared to what these people worried about, the very real threat of not having the necessities of life. I mean, have anybody here ever worried about not having water? Not having food, not having clothing, not having even any shelter or transportation. I mean, no one has raised their hands. And yet, almost 20% of the U.S. population suffers from anxiety or worry. But now along comes Jesus, and he says, in that context... Don't worry about it. Don't give what you are to eat or to drink or to wear a second thought. And to these people on the edge of that parched desert, that, this sermon, these words must have rocked their world. Well, why? I, they didn't even know that not worrying or not being anxious was possible. The best the world offers in his time and in our time is to manage anxiety through counseling or medication. I mean, that is, it is, that's what they're offering. And it, that's as good as it gets. You learn to live with anxiety. In fact, you can so delude yourself and think that it's your special that you have an anxiety disorder. Now, Jesus comes along and says, I offer you an anxiety-free living so you can experience all that there is in life. 
And this was a shocking revelation. I mean, how is this even possible? Well, the offer of a worry-free living, and we'll get into this in more depth next, or two weeks from now, but it is only available to the citizens of his kingdom, to his children, because they alone have the ability to live the kind of life he commands. Because what God commands, and he is commanding, don't worry, what he commands, he gives the ability to obey, to fulfill that command. There's no command he's given in Scripture that we can't obey. Now, in the previous verses, Jesus has addressed our treasure. And what is our treasure? It's the luxuries, the extras that we've accumulated. And he tells us to store up treasures in heaven. In other words, give generously to the poor and to God's causes as the need arises. And in doing so, by laying up treasure in heaven, you reveal that you have what we call a clear vision. You're able to see clearly. You open yourself up to receiving the true riches of spiritual truth that God will will give you. And you also demonstrate that God, not money, is your master. Now he addresses the necessities of life. So let's take a closer look at our text this morning. And he begins by addressing the necessity of what I call fare. Of course, fare is another word for food. But it says this, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, again, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth... Are you not worth much more than they? Now in verse 25, Jesus introduces a two-sentence summary of the thought that he's going to develop in the rest of the verses, verses 26 through 35. And in short, he is saying this, kind of like his theme, theme sentence or theme verses. Mankind in his covetousness has a tendency to devote his whole life to the physical world. To the accumulating of food, clothing, shelter. That's what he's saying. We get so focused on earthly, on the physical. But look at the end of verse 25, he adds this. It's really some perspective through a question. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So by asking this question, Jesus is simply saying this. Is that all there is in life? Is the body all we are to focus on? Jesus wants us to realize that life, even physical life, is not contained in the body. Real life is not really contained in the body. The body only has life because why? God gives the body life, right? So life should not be centered on the body. What we eat, what we drink, and what we wear. Because life is more than the body. Now to illustrate this point, he points to birds. Now notice what he says. Mankind, they sow, right? We reap, we store into barns, 
What do the birds do? They don't do any of that. They don't sow, they don't reap, and yet are they fed? Yes, they are. In fact, if you stop for a moment and think about this, this is Psalm 147.9. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry. So whenever we hear, and you maybe you've heard that growing up, there are, are baby chicks, and, and they make a lot of noise, right? And they open their beaks open, and they're wanting to be fed. They're crying out. They're hungry. But it's fascinating how God provides for birds because he says that when they are making that noise, when they're crying out, they're hungry, are they talking to their mother or are they also talking to their creator? It says, in the young ravens that cry out to him. So when you hear a baby bird crying out for food, try and remember that from God's perspective, they're crying out to him for food. And he feeds them through their mothers. And they don't sow or reap or gather into barns. Now, since we are much more valuable to God than birds, surely he will see that our need for food is met. So it is unnecessary to worry about food and drink because of who? Your heavenly Father. So take your focus off the body, is what he's saying, and just set your focus on God's faithful provision. And again, no one in here indicated to me that you've ever been without water or food. God has kept his promise. Let's talk about fate. It says, and who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Now, do you know that you can worry yourself to death? Do you know that? Did you know that you cannot worry yourself to life? Charles Mayo of the Mayo Clinic said this, worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, and the whole nervous system, and I've never met a man or knew a man to die of overwork, but I've sure known a lot who died of worry. God in his sovereignty, folks, he determines the length of your days. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Job 14.5. Psalm 139.16. And in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me. But you see, the world misses that point. People spend literal fortunes trying to defeat Father Time and lengthen life. And all of this effort ultimately leads to one thing. It's worry. And a poor quality of life. Since you cannot lengthen your life, what should you do then? Well, help ensure your quality of life, your experience of life. Well, how? Well, it's easy. I mean, the Old Testament says this. The key to, to enjoying a, a quality life at the time you're given, it's obedience. And here is just one example. In a lot of time, I'll just give you one. Honor your father and mother that what? Your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Notice that not only is your, your days given to you by God, but even what you have here, the land, your possessions, the resources, are God giving it to you. Obey him. Honor your father and mother. 
And so kids, when I come home this afternoon, I want my meal ready, all right? But God gives us life. He determines our days by his sovereign decree. And if we are obedient to him, we can experience life to its fullest. Chelsea, obey your mother. I see her nudging you there, okay? Finally, he talks about fashion. He turns his attention to our clothing. He says, and why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Now this is a picture from where? You know this? Remember this? From Rosengard in Mount Vernon, Washington last April. Okay, in all my years, by the way, of almost 52 years of existence, I have never seen any human being dressed as exquisitely as these flowers, these lilies. I mean, look at that, as best you can see. And I was just a, a small section of this acres of flowers, particularly lilies. And these flowers, they were breathtaking. They were perfect. Now Jesus said this, even though Solomon, King Solomon, was the greatest, richest, and wisest man to ever live, and even when he was at the height of his glory, he was never clothed as magnificently as these flowers. And yet, we know this, right? I mean, this, this idea of, of flowers and Solomon and clothing, it's, it's kind of just a popular theme or idea or story that's out there. It's kind of common. It's like the golden rule is kind of common. And we know this, even within the church we know this, but we still make a God out of fashion. Now, I know that I am, am talking to everyone here, but I'm also talking specifically to women. Only because God is talking to women, he'll address it here. So I'm not, I'm going to be honest up front here, but I have heard people multiple people who are standing in a closet full of clothes say what, ladies? I have nothing to wear. Right? Or, I don't look good enough in my clothes. Now, I understand that you may get, get smaller and need new clothes or may get a little larger, okay? Get new clothes. I get that. But to stand in a closet full of clothes and say, I don't need to wear... The, yeah, the whole idea here is this. The fashion industry, they profit off of that. Big time. The 2006 hit movie, The Devil Wears Prada. Anyone ever see that movie? If you haven't seen it, I think it's a pretty clean movie, if I remember correctly. Um, it's a good movie, it has a good moral story to it, Okay tells how a young aspiring journalist lands a job at a fashion magazine as an assistant to the uh, head of the magazine, and she abandons her values as she is sucked into the superficial world of the fashion industry. 
And early in the movie, she is in a cafeteria line getting some food where she finds herself defending her choice of clothing because she doesn't know how to clothe like these fashion industry experts do. And her name is Andrea. She says this, okay, you think my clothes are hideous. I get it. But you know, I'm not going to be in fashion forever. So I don't see the point of changing everything about myself just because I have this job. To which her friend Nigel says this, yes, that's true. That's really what this multi-billion industry is all about anyway, isn't it? Inner beauty. <laughs> now, what took me, and I remembered this, was the phrase multi-billion dollar industry. If it was a, fashion was a multi-billion dollar industry in 2006, what is the fashion industry as a whole valued at today? Are you ready for this? A multi-billion dollar industry in 2006. Well, the value of the global fashion industry, according to global factory, global fashion industry statistics, anyone want to take a guess? Anybody? 2006, 15 years ago, multi-billion dollars. This is fascinating. Three trillion dollars. Now, that is 2% of the world's gross domestic product. Not the United States. The world, the entire world's gross domestic product. Peter's words make a lot of sense when you consider that statistic. Again, he's speaking to women here. Wives, your adornment must not be what? Merely external. Braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Now, as hard as humanity may try to clothe themselves, we still can't do what God can do with flowers of the field. And I, I only imagine that God is in heaven and within us, but he's in heaven. He's looking down upon us thinking, why would you spend so much energy for such a result? <laughs> right? So folks, here is the inescapable truth, and you just can't deny this. Let's live in reality here. What will happen to these lilies of the field? By the way, the lilies of the field refers to all types of grass and flowers. It's not just lilies that I, you see behind me here. What will happen to that? Well, the grass withers and what? The flower fades away. They, fade, they will fade away, they'll wither away. And in Jesus' time, what do they do with old grass and flowers? Yeah, the women would build a fire. Just above the fire, they'd place this thick earthen oven made of clay. The fire below it would heat the oven, and then they would open the door and put in whatever they wanted to cook. But if the fire had gone, grown low, or they were in a hurry, they would also start a fire in the oven. And historians tell us what they did. A very simple way of doing this. They would go out in the field and they would find the dried grass and the flowers that had withered and put it in the oven and light it. And by starting a fire on the inside, it would quickly match the heat from the fire outside and would evenly warm the oven. And so Jesus is basically saying this. Don't worry about what you will wear. A God who would lavish such beauty on a temporary flower that will eventually be thrown to the furnace well, he not lavish necessary clothing on one who is his eternal child. 
I mean, it is completely unnecessary to worry about your, your fare or your food, to worry about your fate or your future, and to worry about your clothing or your fashion. Why? It's because of who God is, who your Heavenly Father is. And this is the point I want you to get. God takes care of all of that. That is his responsibility. And we lose sight of that. Because we get born in this world, we go get our education, and we're on our own, and we have to provide for ourselves. And so we go, and, and we find work, and we work, and then we receive income, and then we live off of that, and maybe we have some treasure, a lot of treasure, or some treasure. And we forget that who gave you the ability to, for example, if your job is managing, give you that leadership ability? Who gave you the ability to understand deep equations and can engineer and put together products? Who gave you the ability to teach and you have a desire to teach kids? Okay. Then who provided that work for you? Do you not know the answer to that question? Am I not making any sense? Am I not speaking English? So God did. So he gave you the ability, the gift, and he gave you the means to do it right, the job, okay? And then who provided the necessities? You see? The food, the water, the drink. And I would even throw, you know, shelter, transportation, there's all the necessities. Who provided that for you? Because what we think is what? We did. You didn't. And so we think that, boy, it, it, it's, it is my responsibility, and, and it is. You need to do your part. But in the end, who is responsible for this? Who, what is Jesus saying? Whose category is this? Who is responsible for providing the necessities? It is God. And so as a husband and as a provider working for our, our family when my, my wife was raising the kids that was a, a big burden on me but who was providing all those things for us god was and so when i had to take time off forced time off basically i need two years to recover from difficult ministry i couldn't find a job he did not provide a job how would he provide for us he provided a job for my wife and for two years i couldn't work did I have the ability to work? Yeah. Did I have the gifting to work? Yes. But only when God revealed to me, now I'm going to let you back in the workforce, and then things started moving quickly, but in June 2014, I was done. In June 2016, I was here. Now, who provided all of that? And who had to learn that it was his responsibility to provide? Ultimately, it wasn't mine. And when I understood that, Guess what? The burden was lifted. It doesn't mean I was lazy. I didn't do my part. I just didn't fret or worry about it. God would provide, and he provided. Do you understand the point I'm trying to make here? God is saying it is my responsibility to provide the necessities that you need. That's why I think it was Charles Wesley who said that the greatest thing you can do for a, uh, an unbeliever is introduce them to Jesus Christ. 
Because then what is God's promise and responsibility for that new child of his? He'll provide the necessity. He will take care of that child. I mean, you could, if that's all you can do, that is the best thing you can do for somebody. Then they're taking care of the rest of their life. Now, I want to close with a reminder. Because it's been a while since I did this. And it's really this. It's, it's what does a citizen of the kingdom of heaven look like? Because this is what he's been talking about in chapter 5 and chapter 6. And we're ending, running near to the end of chapter 6. And I just came up with, and you could come up with more than this number, but 14 characteristics of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And for space reasons, I didn't put the verses on here. You'll get it in the sermon when I send it to you. But each characteristic, it begins with the letter P, because I want to make it more memorable for you. And these are the characteristics of a citizen of his kingdom. And you can take yourself and compare your life to these characteristics to see, am I living like I am in the kingdom of heaven? Okay? And here they are. They perceive their spiritual bankruptcy. That's Matthew 5, verse 3. Okay? I understand that I cannot earn God's favor on my own. They practice the confession of sin. I mourn over my sin. You're a sinful person. You're going to recognize that. And you will continue to sin. But you confess it. They produce humility. And it's a natural result of knowing I'm spiritually bankrupt, I'm a sinful person, and I'm humbled by that. And so that leads to the next point. I need a righteousness, not of my own. So I pursue the righteousness of someone else. I pursue the righteousness of God. In light of all that, I am merciful. I present mercy to people. I am pure in heart. I pursue peace. I'm a peacemaker. I am patient when I am persecuted. There's not something wrong with you when you are persecuted. That's a good thing. It makes no sense. I'm not going to try to explain it to you, but it's a good thing. In my presence, or our presence, delays society's decay. You're the salt of the earth, folks. Are you to be that? I propose illumination to a dark world. You are the light. It's a dark world. He who has the light is a leader. Follow me. Here's another way. I have a peculiar, or we have a peculiar outlook on relationships. This is verses 21 through 48 in Matthew 5. In terms of murder, for example, adultery, divorce, vows, vengeance, loving neighbors, we know that it all begins where? Not in the act. Before the act happened, it happened in the heart. That's where it begins. And so that's a peculiar outlook. This is why passing legislation to take away guns will do absolutely nothing to curb violence. With James Dobson, I think, said it best. He knows that his, his young sons, they take, take away the water pistols and little toy guns, and what will his boys do, and what did they do? They picked up sticks to play cowboys and Indians. They prepare righteously. This is what we've been going over. They're in their religious devotion, the giving, the praying, the fasting, they are to do it with the right motives. Because again, it goes, about, it goes back to the heart. But I don't think that we think of these next two 
as characteristics of a citizen of his kingdom, of a child of God. But they're absolutely, as you go through this, chapters 5, 6, and 7, characteristics. They provide generously. Folks, they put an end to worry. Their lives are not characterized by the symptoms that I read and that I showed you this morning. So how do I stop worrying? Well, I think it begins with knowing, as all things do, and as we learn, it's appropriated or put into action, experienced by faith. And so with that in mind, I think it's very simple. This is what I want you to do this week, next two weeks. Just memorize this passage. It may take you a while, but there's a lot in here that I've brought out. But in regards to the necessities of life, in regards to worry, because I think it's five times in this passage the word worry is used. So clearly God is addressing this issue because he knows it is a too common experience in the lives of, of all of his creation, but also in the lives of his people. And it does not have to be. I mean, it is a very good thing We're seeing God in a positive light here. He's a loving Heavenly Father that knows what you need and He will provide for you. And He wants you to have and experience the fullness of all that physical life can be in your brief time here on earth. And I don't know about you, but if I have a choice between that Heavenly Father and the gods that the other religions worship. I'm choosing that God. Amen. They got that one right. There should have been an amen and they got that one right. So I didn't have to say that. Good. All right. Well, let's stand. Let's close with this.